0: Parking enforcement. I drove a three wheeled vehicle with government plates and a built in freezer, issuing parking citations and dispensing waffle cones, Klondike bars, and creamsicles. My dispatcher was a man named Peterson. Peterson ran a side business, Walls of Plenty, which sold discount decorative bric brac to restaurants and bars. Peterson's team Paid on commission, scoured garage sales, estate sales, thrift stores, police liquidations, and pawn shops for anything the restaurants might conceivably purchase. License plates, baseball gloves, cattle skulls, fiberglass, tuna. It was mind-boggling, Peterson said, the things restaurants would mount on their walls. Sometimes, the restaurants would make special requests. A seafood place inquiring about an atmospheric diving suit, for example, or a Tex-Mex joint desiring a pinata shaped like John Wayne. And Peterson, for the right price, would happily oblige. He had connections overseas. He had interns who rooted through trash cans. He had contacts in all the major craft fairs, sidewalk sales, bazaars. He had an understanding with St. Vincent de Paul. He had a man who was a genius in landfills. My workday started at 7 a.m. I reported to Peterson at the Western office, and he briefed me on my patrol assignments and the flavors of the day. Out in the field, I communicated with Peterson via walkie talkie. We had boring numerical code names. Mine was 23. Some of my co workers, inspired by aerial combat movies, had petitioned management to allow us code names of our own choosing Viper, Hawk, Wolfman, etc. The petition was denied. A five-year veteran called Peterson, Silver Falcon, on official frequencies, and was written, Up. There were five parking enforcement zones in the city. The western, the eastern, university, central, the valley. The patrol areas in my zone, the western, were primarily commercial. The streets narrow, the intersections snarled, Parking spaces scarce, competed for savagely. If you study the history of human conflict, you will find that most wars, at their most elemental level, are fought over access to limited resources oil, water, gold, arable land, etc. In the Western, the most limited resource was parking, and we were its peacekeepers its tire-chalking coalition of The Willing. Like other coalitions of The Willing, we were not welcomed with open arms by the general public. Usually we were only costing parking violators 18 bucks But the way they berated us you'd think we had just publicly deflowered their daughter or sold at auction their infant son there's a bubbling anger in america to which we as parking enforcers reserved front row seats an anger known intimately by our brothers and sisters in the post office the customer service industry the department of motor vehicles An anger which, unable to be salvoed at the abstractions that are its sources, political corruption, rising unemployment, unaffordable healthcare, corporate greed, is instead unleashed upon unwitting proxies, a desk clerk, a meter maid, an 18-year-old call center representative in Mumbai. An anger which, with apologies to our politicians and idealists, hope alone is not. Going to a race. Novelty parking enforcement owes its existence to this anger. The nascent department was formed during an extraordinary meeting of the city commission after the fifth parking enforcement officer in as many weeks was beaten to death by a disgruntled motorist. I was still in high school at the time. I remember the shocking amateur footage, the news anchors somber tones, the tabloid headlines, ticket to death, killings over quarters, meter made, expired. In light of the national media attention garnered by these horrific acts of violence, the commission felt that city parking enforcement needed a PR facelift, a fresh start, a new look that said to city residents, yes, Our officers may be ticketing you for violating municipal code, but they're doing so not just as city employees, but as your friends. That new look was Novelty Parking Enforcement. Official Spokesman, Morty the Moo Cow. Official Uniform, Good Humor, White. Official Anthem, Pop Goes the Weasel. Official Slogan, Making Parking a Treat. Still, even though I could offer ticketed motorists over sixteen varieties of ice cream and seven different flavors of snow cone, it hardly exempted me from abuse or insult. Even with Frere Jaca chiming happily out of my work vehicle's loudspeaker, I was still hated, feared, ridiculed, loathed. People loved to tell me where to stick my tickets. They loved to compare me to the great mass murderers and make unrealistic suggestions about what I should do with my genitals. They hypothesized about my love life, my parentage, my mental acuity, my mother's occupation, my sexual orientation. And I always responded, as taught in employee training, with verbal deflectors. Yes, however, agreed, but, Nonetheless...
1: You're a bastard!
0: Yes, however, you're parked in a loading zone. You're a (laughs) sucker. Agreed, but your meter is expired. You're worthless!
2: Worthless! You sad, sopping sack of (laughs) s***!
0: Nonetheless, you can't park here on Fridays between 2 and 4 p.m. Admittedly, not all of my antagonists assailed me with vulgarities. Some, being more philosophical, preferred to ask rhetorical questions. How do you sleep at night? How's hell this time of year? Why don't you get a real job? I was always intrigued by this distinction, a real versus a fake job. A fake job, in my mind, conjured an image of a well-dressed man holding a banana up to the side of his face and urging the sale of tech stocks, or a well-dressed woman nodding soberly at a department store mannequin, slipping her card between its plastic fingers and saying, we'll talk. But this is not what my assailants meant. They meant, essentially, that their work, accountant, salesperson, office clerk, systems analyst, etc. was valuable, respectable, meaningful, whereas mine was not. That they were true, blue, gainfully employed Americans, whereas I was not. That they were busting their asses to pay their mortgages, cover their bills, raise their kids, put food on their tables, Whereas his was prancing around putting computer-generated tickets on windshields, trying to take everything they'd worked so hard for away. My dad had a real job. He worked in logistics for Globosmelt, the area leader in premium fish processing. Globosmelt was one of the largest employers in our city. They lent their name to a dog park, an opera house, a children's museum, a baseball stadium with a retractable dome. Globosmelt had hired my dad right out of college, put him to work as an operations clerk, promised him promotion, pay raises, and a pension. In return for his lifetime dedication to the company, his undiluted fealty sounded fair to dad, and he kept his end of the bargain, and Globosmelt, for a time, kept theirs. 25 years passed. Dad became an analyst, a specialist, a supervisor. He became a husband, a father, a father of two. He became a fishing enthusiast, a wine connoisseur, a weekend golfer, an armchair investor. He became the owner of a modest split level in a neighborhood with no registered sex offenders and highly rated schools. During Dad's 25th year with Globosmelt, I graduated from high school. My classmates and I alphabetically entered the gym, sat on metal folding chairs, hid beach balls, silly string, and sex dolls beneath our polyester robes. Her parents sat in the bleachers proudly, remembering us as infants, toddlers, grade schoolers, young adolescents. They waved, took pictures, wiped tears away from their eyes. The principal spoke; and our attentions lapsed. I thought about the summer, sex, hopes, regrets, sex, after parties, sex, sex. Our school sports teams were called the Trojans, and there were paintings of Paris dishing Hector and Alioupe and Helen faking out Athena with a crossover dribble on the gymnasium's walls. I thought about the cute girl alphabetically seated beside me, sex with the cute girl alphabetically seated beside me. I thought about the etymology of the phrase, real world. I thought about novelty parking enforcement. I had seen the brochures in my guidance counselor's office, the applications for the initial 12 week training program, making parking a treat. Novelty parking enforcement required only a high school diploma or a GED, had immediate job openings, and paid a starting salary of $29,000 a year with paid vacations, sick and personal days, full medical dental vision, and retirement. Conversely, My best friend Francesca was applying to be a serving wench at Captain Blackbeard's Southern Style Fried Chicken, my friend Tony was interviewing at Steak and Shake, and my friend Diego was already a busboy at Hooters. The class speaker, valedictorian 06, told us to dream big, reach for that rainbow, shoot for the moon, and land among the stars meanwhile several dropouts were dreaming big in the student parking lot knocking back miller high Life's and slashing the tires of the valedictorian's car i grew up west of the western a land of strip malls congested traffic housing communities whose names clincrest pleasant ridge montmartre projected a sophistication and grace conspicuously absent from the communities themselves. By the time I was in high school, my family had moved to one of our district's nicer neighborhoods, but I was still, at heart, a child of fast food, convenience stores, Walmarts, unreliable public transportation. None of my close friends had applied to four-year universities, only a handful were enrolling at the local community college, Education Land, whose professors taught in the food court and atrium of the Westtown Mall. Francesca's career plan involved seducing a wealthy man at Captain Blackbeard's Southern style fried chicken and being whisked away to a magic world of tracked housing, luxury automobiles, and spousal health insurance. But until then, she, like the rest of my friends, would be reciting the soups of the day and living with her parents. This was the great appeal of novelty parking enforcement to me, its promise of a place of my own, a life of my own, domestic and financial independence. Sure, $29,000 wasn't all that much, it wasn't the good life, but it was the good enough life a used car a thrift store tv craigslist furniture raging all-night keggers at my duplex the valedictorian's words bouncing off the bleachers the backboards the ceiling the hardwood floor captured my attention intermittently spread your wings time flies Safer every moment the world is your oyster. I started mentally compiling a list of the 10 graduating seniors I most wanted to have sex with in alphabetical order. Go Trojans, said the valedictorian, and everyone applauded. The principal returned to the microphone. He waited for administrators to confiscate the beach balls, silly string cans, and inflatable dolls that had materialized during the valedictorian's 10-minute address, and then introduced the commencement speaker, Henry something or other, the third, a big shot over at Globosmelt. It was impossible to avoid Globosmelt in our city. Its logo, a curled fish wrapping its scaly body around the earth, popping up at every sporting event, arts festival. The lawn concert and charity run/walk in town. The famous Globosmelt Smelt girls revealing the sexy side of fish processing at area bars, nightclubs, discos. My own dad, a Globo Smelt employee for the past 25 years, filling our cupboards with Globosmelt coffee mugs, our closets with Globo Smelt sun visors our dressers with Globosmelt t-shirts, our drawers with Globosmelt pens. And yet, I knew next to nothing about the company, the aerial leader in fish processing. Great, what was fish processing? Superior Aquaculture Solutions. Super, what was aquaculture? And what was its problem? My dad had worked in fish processing since before I was born, since before I was conceived, and yet I barely knew what he did. Production supervisor, wonderful. What exactly did the production supervisor do? I knew that it involved coming home every day looking defeated, exhausted, and miserable. I knew that it entailed smelling, despite rigorous applications of cologne, strongly of raw seafood at all times. The big shot at Globosmelt spoke to us about his humble beginnings, about growing up poor and fatherless in 1950s Arizona. He spoke of dry heat, the lonely desert, the night songs of coyotes, the fire-stoked fervency of his adolescent dreams. He told us how fish were gutted, headed, thin-boned, filleted, blast-chilled, brined, minced, pickled, extruded. He illuminated the smoking process, vacuum packaging, seam inspection, the refrigeration cycle, cross-contamination, shelf-life extension, prevention of tapeworms, roundworms, botulism. He spoke about adversity roadblocks, detours, forks, mazes, labyrinths, dead ends. He spoke of naysayers and personal monsters, of darkest hours, certain, defeat, of being lost in the wilderness, forgotten, left, for dead. Stay true, he said, filling the gymnasium with his baritone voice, stay true to yourself, and you will never be lost. Stay true and the rewards will follow. I thought about leasing a duplex. I thought about getting a fake ID. I thought about the past, the future, sex, graduation presents, sex, sex, sex. The big shot relinquished the microphone and everyone applauded. He posed for a photo op with a principal, a smile, a handshake, a thumbs up, and returned to his folding chair on the portable stage. The principal presented the class of 06, and we received our diplomas. More smiles, more handshakes, more photo ops, and after some formalities, we were outside. Tassels flipped, arms extended mortar boards in the air i found my family among the teeming crowds i found my friends no longer separated from me by alphabetization i made the rounds of post-graduation luncheons filled my belly with cold cuts cucumber sandwiches fresh fruit potato salad and bean dip and then at nights, i drank caroused stirred up trouble and spectacularly failed to lose my virginity. The next morning, I awoke on a suburban lawn. I crawled into the shade of the backyard, curled up beneath a tree, fell back asleep. In the late afternoon, I returned home, head throbbing, proud graduate of the class of 06, and found my father smashing Globosmelt coffee mugs to splintered pieces in the kitchen, tearing apart Globosmelt t-shirts, stomping on Globosmelt sun visors, snapping Globosmelt pens. Spread your wings, time flies, savor every moment. The world is your oyster. I stumbled into the bathroom and vomited all over the floor. dad lost his job at Globosmelt, my mom fell ill. She fell out of her chair during dinner mid-artichoke passing and remained crumpled on the floor, conscious but clutching her head, politely requesting that someone please stop the dining room from spinning. I had been accepted into the Novelty Parking Enforcement Department's 12-week training program by this point, was spending my days learning the municipal parking code, self-defense maneuvers, ice cream scooping technique, but nothing in my training addressed what to do when your dad had become a depressed couch potato wiping nacho cheese off his face with newspaper job postings, and your mom had become better my chronic vertigo. I learned the intricacies of alternate side parking. I learned the language of painted curbs. I learned how to make the perfect sundae, the perfect snow cone, the perfect banana split, the perfect death by chocolate. I learned how to most effectively use pepper spray. I learned the lyrics to Frère Jacques in both English and French. While I was busy becoming both a parking enforcer and the caretaker of my crumbling family, my friends were all embarking on first dates of the real world, Tony was at Steak and Shake, coming to terms with having to wear a bow tie. Diego was at Hooters, trying to get into his co worker's tiny orange shorts. And Francesca was at Cap'n Blackbeard's Southern Style Fried Chicken, reporting to his supervisor with an eye patch and a stuffed parrot, Velcroed, onto his shoulder. I had a full schedule, training all day and tending to my parents and younger brother Stevie all night, but I carved out a few hours each week to listen to my friends' food service sob stories in the comfort of a Denny's corner booth.
3: So my supervisor pulled me aside today.
0: Said Francesca during one such late night powwow,
3: And says the customers have been complaining about my pirate dialect. They're ticked off that I say barbecue instead of barbecue, that I say parfait instead of Parfait. Then I say white or dark instead of white or dark.
0: But you're not a pirate, I said. You're a serving wench.
3: My words exactly.
0: So I'm definitely getting close with this one chick, said Diego in between bites of his Denny's Slam burger. I walked off one of her tables today and she was all like,
1: thanks, hey,
0: Which I know, I
4: know, it doesn't sound like much, but the way she said it, dude, Tony, you just had to be there, man. It's like she was unzipping my flat with her gratitude.
3: So my supervisor says, whether you're a pirate or a serving lunch is not the point. The point is, the customer isn't coming to Captain Blackbeard's southern style fried chicken for just the fried chicken. He's coming for the entire swashbuckling experience. And when you say barbecue instead of barbecue, how swashbuckling an experience do you think your customers are having on a scale from 1 to 10?
0: Dude, said Tony to Diego,
4: remember, you're a bus boy, not a bus man. Think about that for a
3: second. And then my supervisor says, as you're well aware, Captain Blackbeard southern-style fried chicken is the number two piracy-themed quick-service restaurant in the United States of America. And one day, God willing, we'll knock Long John Silver's out of number one. But I'll tell you one thing, we're not gonna beat Long John Silver's by saying barbecue. We're not gonna triumph by saying parfait or white or dark.
4: Bro, I'm a boss boy at Hooters. How can I not give
3: And so in my head, I'm thinking, I am too good for this. I am too smart for this. I have too much value as a person to be taking from a 40-year-old man with an unnecessary eye patch and a fake parrot attached to his shoulder with Velcro.
4: How can you not get shit, said Tony, by being a busboy at Hooters.
3: Then another part of me is thinking, my tips here aren't so bad. They're a hell of a lot better than what Danny's making hair at Denny's or what Audrey's making at Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind pancake house. And the only reason I even got this job is because the manager is cheating on his wife with my aunt. So, am I really too good for this? Do I really have too much value as a person? Diego, these girls don't respect you.
4: They don't respect their customers. They don't respect anyone in any way associated with hot wings, hot pants, and the blatant ogling of women's breasts.
3: So then my supervisor says, So what's it gonna be? Are you gonna be content with number two? With good enough? With Long John Silver stomping on your face with his one remaining leg? Or are you willing to do whatever it takes to be number one?
4: They just want to make their tips, go home, and jump in the shower to scrub away the scent of buffalo wing sauce. They're not here to hook up with the hired help. It's all about the Benjamins.
3: And uh... And my heart just breaks to say it. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And he says, no, give me a yar. Dude,
0: at least I don't have to wear a bow tie. But yar doesn't actually mean yes, does it, I said. I'm coming to terms with that, said Tony.
3: My words exactly.
0: Three months later, my dad was still unemployed, and my mom was still confined to her bed. But I was no longer a Novelty Parking Enforcement trainee. I was a Novelty Parking Enforcement officer. I was given a badge, a numerical code name, a uniform. I was given an employee handbook and a W-4 form. On my first shift, I issued 39 citations and sold 17 sundaes and ice cream cones. The most popular flavor was vanilla. The most common citation was for parking at an expired meter. The department employed a flex shift rotation that had me working most Saturdays and Sundays. Weekend shifts were my favorite Small children, innocent of any parking infractions, sprinted toward my vehicle the second they heard turkey in the straw or pop goes the weasel. Weekdays were different. Since I worked mornings, all the kids were in school, and so I patrolled a city of adults only. Serious men in suits, career women carrying designer handbags. Everyone busy, everyone in a hurry, everyone on cell phones and smartphones. I sold most of my ice cream during lunchtime to high school kids, dropouts, college students from education land. The older folks, their parents, had no time for the simple delights of a Klondike bar or a sugar cone. Pop Goes the Weasel only spurred them sprinting when they needed to plug their meter, when they were parked in a handicapped space or a loading zone. I was making okay money, my salary supplemented by the occasional commission from Peterson for discarded, yet apparently wall-mountable junk I found on curbsides or in dumpsters, but I was still living west of the western with my parents, With my family's financial outlook less than bullish, I had put my duplex dreams on the back burner, my parents in no condition to lose me to post-adolescent escape. Still, even with my biweekly paychecks, we were still in the red. Mortgage payments and medical bills, the classic one-two punch. It was Dad who suggested we rent out the efficiency. Then used for storage, the efficiency, Dad reasoned, could net us an easy $400 a month. I helped Dad post the Craigslist ad, and a week later, we had a 20-year-old Education Land student named Dave living in the small room connected to our garage. Dave was quiet, kept to himself, studied something pragmatic like accounting or business administration, and was always on time with his rent payments. Dad was thrilled. He emerged from his months-long depression, just long enough to participate in a job interview with Globosmelt's rival industrial snook and was told he would hear back from them in seven to ten business days. Seven to ten business days later, Dad was back on the couch watching America's Got Scabies covered in nacho cheese sauce, but at least Dave was still in the efficiency, generating us some extra income. Dad said, what if we spruced up the garage? We spruced up the garage, I posted the ad, we showed to several prospective renters, and within a week, a 37-year-old experimental filmmaker named Pascal was sleeping on a mattress beside Dad's Pontiac Grand Am. next was the ruck room in happier times the ruck room was the site of ping pong tournaments sleepovers movie marathons super bowl parties but now it was mostly a graveyard of entertainments past bits of nerf balls chewed apart by dogs littering the carpet action figures stuffed animals erector sets packed into cardboard boxes, stacked, forgotten, to the ceiling. The rec room, in terms of renting, was a trickier proposition, but a church friend put us in touch with a Dominican family of four who agreed to $5 a night, downstairs bathroom access included. Sure, it only amounted to about 150 bucks a month, but with mom's medical pills, every single penny counted. The way we saw it, three months of Dominicans was an x-ray, six months was a CAT scan, and nine months was an MRI. The Dominicans, the Batistas, were a pleasant family. The children, Lola and Joaquin, spoke perfect Spanish and English, while their parents, Chucho and Marta, spoke only Spanish. Mr. and Mrs. Batista worked as custodians at the same school, but during opposite shifts, Mrs. Batista worked days, her husband worked nights. The only time they were both conscious together in our house was the weekend. Otherwise, Mr. Batista came home every work night to find his wife snoring peacefully in a sleeping bag beneath our ping-pong table. Though I told no one, I had a massive crush on Mrs. Batista. Not in a lurid, softcore porn, mother i would like to etc. sort of way. More like extreme admiration. Except, sometimes, I caught myself wondering what she looked like, naked. She was short, probably around five foot even. I imagine that her custodial work frequently involved stepladders. She kept her hair tied back in a bun and wore thrift store t-shirts that my friends might have worn ironically, but on her the shirts and their messages, Jesus loves me, say no to drugs, seemed sincere, innocent, sweet. Mrs. Batista was Truly wonderful with her children, she played ping-pong with them, Guess Who, shoots and Ladders, Candyland, Battleship, Monopoly. Having never played these games before, she had her children explain the rules in Spanish, learn the subtleties of free parking, the passing of Go, getting out of jail. Despite sleeping every night beneath a ping-pong table, Mrs. Batista was a happy woman. This, I think, is why I was so attracted to her. In my line of work, I didn't come across happy women very often. Beautiful women, yes. College girls, career women, mothers I'd like to, etc. But they only ever spoke to me if I had written them. A ticket. They only ever told me to go to hell, go etc myself, go take a flying etc at the moon. Weeks passed. Dad remained on the couch. Mom's condition failed to improve. Every night, I would carry Mom's dinner upstairs to her bedroom, where she had permanently resided, save for doctor visits, since the onset of her illness. And as she listlessly picked at her hamburger helper, or macaroni and cheese, I would update her on the changing demographic landscape of the floors below. Dad rented out the laundry room, I would say. Or we have a high school punk band rehearsing in the back patio enclosure. Or Dad is asking for $125 a month for the treehouse. Mom wasn't thrilled about Dad's monetization of her property. She was concerned about allowing into our home the class of people who would willingly live in someone else's wreck or laundry room. But she was even less thrilled about falling behind on the mortgage, and Dad assured her, probably falsely, that all renters' financial and criminal histories had been thoroughly vetted. So, she adopted, in her upstairs isolation, a policy of less affair, out of sight, out of mind. And how did I feel? Dave was fine. We barely saw him. He kept himself cooped up in the efficiency. Pascal labored on his films day and night in the garage, and could become testy if my garage door opener use ruined one of his shots. But other than that, no big problems. The elderly couple in the laundry room were sweet, but definitely got in the way of doing laundry. If I needed to wash our family's clothes at night, I used a laundromat, not wanting to disturb the couple's sleep with the clatter of the dryer or the groan of the washing machine's spin cycle. The religious ascetics in the treehouse I wasn't crazy about. They had usurped my brother Stevie's last remaining outpost of solitude, an injustice which had made him extremely irritable, and they were always trying to recruit us and the other tenants into their religious order. But they were extremely polite and never complained about the treehouse's lack of weatherproofing, The punk band, I couldn't stand. They were called Venom Retriever and sounded like the musical equivalent of a multi-vehicle pile-up, but they didn't actually live in our back patio, they just rehearsed there three or four days a week. So I purchased some heavy-duty earplugs and reflected upon the meaning of the word sacrifice every time I heard their drummer start to throttle his kit. And as for the Dominicans, Mr. Batista worked nights, so I rarely saw him. Lola and Joaquin got along with Stevie okay, challenging him to regular rec room tournaments of ping pong. And Mrs. Batista, well, Mrs. Batista, with just one smile, could make an entire day of parking violators asking, did I feel like a big man? and how did I sleep at night, and did I ever look in the mirror and just want to blow my own brains out, melt instantly, away? But then, Dad rented out our crawl space to a man named Cortez. Hi, sport, said my dad. This is Cortez. You'll be living in the crawl space. A Nobel laureate's chair collapsed on TV, and Cortez and my dad burst into hysterics. My first impression of Cortez was that he was the kind of man who was a great seat partner on airplanes, a man who kept people riveted with wild stories from taxi to touchdown. Then in the terminal, vanished, no exchanged phone numbers, no email addresses, no names. He was a small man, not much taller than Mrs. Batista, which I suppose made him an ideal candidate to live in a crawl space. But even from day one of his lease, he never seemed to confine himself to the tiny alcove beneath her stairs. Had come home from a day of novelty parking enforcement. Cortez would be playing ping-pong with my brother and the Batistas in the rec room, discussing the weather with the elderly couple in the laundry room. He'd be attaining inner peace in the treehouse, playing tambourine with Venom Retriever on the back patio, starring in one of Pascal's experimental films in the garage. I asked Dad how much he was paying in rent. 50 bucks a month, Dad said. Don't you think that's pretty low? I said. Sport? He's living in a crawl space. Doesn't seem that way to me, I said. Seems like he has his run of the whole house. It should be billed accordingly. No, no,
2: he's a good man,
0: said Dad.
2: 50 bucks.
0: 50 bucks a month is fine. Dad loved Cortez. They watched TV together, day and night. Cortez learned that Dad was a wine connoisseur. Before you knew it, they were knocking back a 79 Sauvignon Blanc in the dining room, Dad explaining the three phases of wine tasting, attack, evolution, finish. Admittedly, ever since Cortez had arrived, Dad had seemed much happier, happier than he had been in months, but he had also lost focus with his job search. He would schedule an interview, then cancel at the last minute because Cortez said it was a beautiful day to go golfing. He would show Cortez a job posting in the newspaper, and Cortez would say, No, Pete, don't sell yourself short. You know you can do better than that. As for Cortez, I wasn't sure where he worked. He would occasionally disappear at odd hours for short periods of time. But for the most part, he was always in the house, Cortez in the kitchen, microwaving himself some hamburger helper, Cortez in the living room, watching America's Next Top Hobbies Awareness billboard, Cortez in the shower, singing the songs of Venom Retriever, Cortez in the laundry room, stepping over the elderly to retrieve his whites, his darks. He was always good for his rent though, Pay Dad on the last day of every month a rubber banded roll of fifty crisp one dollar bills. Service jobs. Tony had memorized Steak and Shake's entire menu. Francesca had begrudgingly polished her pirate dialect. And Diego claimed he was this close to a hand job in Hooter's walk in freezer. Tony and Diego seemed to be doing okay, judging from our weekly Denny's Conversations. Tony was taking classes at Education Land and hoping to eventually become a certified public accountant and Diego hadn't yet tired of wiping off tables and refilling waters in the presence of busty women in microscopic shorts, but Francesca, more and more salty and sullen, was clearly losing patience with the real world.
3: A normal guy,
0: she said one night at Denny's.
3: That's all I'm asking for. Normal. Like in statistics class, a normal distribution. You would expect to find a normal guy at Captain Blackbeard's Southern Style Fried Chicken, right? Normal is the most common, the average, the mean, the middle part of the bell curve. What you wouldn't expect to find are the, what are they called? The, um, the, off, the, the X, the out... Outliers,
0: said Tony, before taking a monster bite of his mushroom Swiss burger.
3: Right. You wouldn't expect to find the outliers. except. Who do I meet at Captain Black Bear's Southern Style Fried Chicken? Guys who say, shiver me timbers, guys who own box sets of sea shanties, guys who tell jokes about scurvy and called Miller Lite grog, and invite me to treasure hunts while drawing big red X's on the flies of their pants. Do you see what I'm getting at? Every single guy I meet is a mother outlier.
4: Well, you're assuming a normal population, said Tony. I think we can all agree that a restaurant where the hostess walks the plank every hour on the hour is not going to attract a normal population.
3: And then let's say I meet a guy and he seems okay. He's cute, he's nice, he doesn't ask me if I'd like to join him for some raping and plundering, etc. But then we go on a date, for which I spend an hour on my makeup, pick out a nice outfit, nothing trashy, something refined, adult, classy, and the second he sees me after I open the door, he looks disappointed, like his entire face just drops. All interest in me, gone. And I look good, I mean, I I know I look good. Do I look good?
0: You look good, I said.
3: Right, I look good. And so we go on this date, some fancy Italian restaurant. He shows no interest in anything that I say. And the whole time I'm thinking, what is going on? What is his problem? Why was he so into me at Captain Blackbeard's Southern Style Fried Chicken of all places? And now, in the real world, he looks at me like I'm one of the Italian restaurant's bland wall murals of schooners sailing in the Mediterranean. What did I have then that I don't have now?
0: Your work uniform, said Tony. His mushroom swiss burger now only a memory.
3: Exactly, my work uniform. My lace garter stockings, my pirate earrings, my stiletto boots, my lace-up bodice so low-cut you can practically see my nipples. I spent all that time doing my makeup and picking out the right outfit so I looked sophisticated and glamorous and an adult. And it turns out he could give up flying etc about sophistication and glamour and adulthood. All he really wanted was a serving wench. Like, I must dress like that all the time. Like I must enjoy men with eye patches staring with their one good eye at my breasts. Like I'm a little whore who will shiver his timbers and jolly his roger and shout land ho as he anchors away all over my face. Well, sorry, but I'm not. I don't want to wear pirate earrings. I don't want to wear gartered stockings. But the Captain Black Bear's dress code says I have to. So I have to. Don't I? Don't I have to?
0: home from work and found Cortez and my dad taping handwritten signs throughout our property. They plastered them to doors, windows, the refrigerator, the treehouse, the garage. The sign said, Tenant Association Meeting, tonight, 7.30 p.m. Since when do we have a tenants association, I asked my dad on the front lawn. Save your questions for the meeting. He said, Tonight! 7.30. Then excused himself to tape a sign to the front door. The meeting was held in the living room. Everyone was there except Mr. Batista, who was at work, and my mom, who was upstairs, lying in her bed. The religious ascetics sat cross-legged on the floor. The elderly couple and Mrs. Batista sat on the couch dave pascal stevie lola and joaquin sat on chairs borrowed from the kitchen the three members of venom retriever shared a love seat
2: thanks everyone for being here tonight at our first ever tenants association meeting
0: said my dad who stood side by side with cortez in front of the assembled crowd i for
2: one am excited about this association's possibilities and hope it will prove to be a productive forum where each of us can share his or her questions, ideas, and concerns.
0: I have a question, I said, raising my hand, which I guess is also a concern. Why do we have a tenants' association? Glad you asked, sport, said Dad, removing his suit jacket and hanging it over the back of an empty chair. Dad adjusted his tie. He looked sharper than he had in months, his eyes bright, his face clean-shaven, nacho cheese conspicuously absent from his jaw. Cortez and I were watching the TV
2: the other day, said Dad. National Geographic. And on came a show called National Geographic Crips. Each week a camera crew travels to a different country and visits two homes. One belonging to someone beautiful, famous, and fabulously wealthy, and the other belonging to someone homely, anonymous, and destitute. This particular episode was shot in India, in Mumbai. The first home belonged to a handsome billionaire, Rajiv something or other. He owned a $100 million mansion on Altamont Road, Mumbai's most exclusive street and guided the camera crew through the mansion's hundreds of rooms. There were ceiling frescoes depicting the Ramayana. There were beautiful spiral staircases made of marble. There were gold-leaf toilets, utility closets with their own bathrooms, an indoor cricket pitch, a fourth-story hallway for some reason containing a yacht. Rajiv showed off his Ferraris, his Lamborghinis, his Porsches and Maseratis. He showed off his wife, a Bollywood actress, who tried to guide the camera crew to her children's bedroom but got lost. Rajiv invited the camera crew onto a fifth floor balcony and showed them his stunning hilltop view of the Arabian Sea, its sun-sparkled aquamarine waters, its hundreds of catamarans, dinghies, and trawlers, its limitless expansiveness, ocean and sky as far as the eye could see. Rajiv gazed at the sea slipped an arm around his wife took a sip of a vintage cognac this he said to the camera crew is life then after the commercial break the camera crew traveled to a garbage dump there living in a small one-room house made out of scrap wood and tin lived the second national geographic Crips owner his name was Amir and he made his living collecting landfill scrap metal and selling it to a local dealer for less than $1 a day. It only took a few seconds to show the cameras his house. These are the walls. This is the floor. This is the roof. And so he then led the cameras through his neighborhood, along the dirt paths, winding between towering mounds of trash. There were swarms of flies as thick as sandstorms. There were wild dogs, their mangy flesh tight over visible ribs. Amir showed the camera crew men wading knee-deep through sewage, and women in burkas praying amid piled plastic toward Mecca, and colonies of rats darting in and out of makeshift food stands. He showed them unclaimed corpses, and eleven-year-old prostitutes, and children without eyes or hands. He invited the camera crew to the peak of the garbage dump, showed them his view of Mumbai's skyscrapers. Said that at night... The lights in the rich part of the city glittered upon the slums like a million stars. He took them back to his home, to his handmade shack. A blind man begged the camera crew for food, water, mercy. This, Amir said, is life. So, naturally, Cortez and I are profoundly moved by this. Even though the show's immediately followed by a luxury car commercial, and then a commercial for KFC's Build Your Own Variety Bucket, And we get to talking about what we've just seen, economic disparity, social injustice, and so forth, and I say to Cortez, how do those billionaires sleep at night? All those rooms, all those cars, all that gold, cognac and marble, and just a few miles away, millions of people are literally living in piles of trash. And Cortez says to me, how do you sleep at night? And I say, What do you mean? And he says, You have a couple of 90-year-olds sleeping on a rubber bath mat in your laundry room.
0: At this point, I had had enough. No, I said, that is not in any way the same thing. We are not handsome billionaire industrial playboys. Our house does not have utility closets with their own bathrooms, and we do not own Ferraris, or Maseratis, or yachts. The only reason any of these people are here is because we don't have any money. I'm the family's sole breadwinner, and I drive a three-wheeled vehicle with government plates and a built-in freezer, issuing parking citations and dispensing waffle cones, Klondike bars, and creamsicles." But Sport, hear me out now," said Dad. Cortez does sort of have a point. No, I said, Cortez does not have a point. Cortez also does not have a job. Have you ever wondered where his fifty bucks a month comes from? Have you ever noticed how he never has so much set a foot in the crawl space? that he eats all our hamburger helper, that he takes 20-minute showers in the downstairs bathroom and drinks all of your Sauvignon Blanc. Sport, all Cortez is trying to say is, Dad, right now, Mom is upstairs, and thank God she can't hear any of this, because when she gets better, God damn it, she's gonna get better. I am not gonna have her walk down the stairs and discover her husband's become some bastard conglomeration of Karl Marx, Che Guevara, Mother Teresa, and Mickey Mouse. Stevie, who was seated behind me, tugged at my shirt. What? I yelled.
4: Mrs. Batista has a question,
0: he said, pointing. She was on the couch, meekly raising her hand dad told Mrs. Batista's children to let her know she had the floor. Mrs. Batista spoke in Spanish, and her son translated after every few sentences like in broadcasts of foreign dignitary speeches on NPR or the BBC. Mrs. Batista, through Joaquin, said that she was sorry her husband couldn't make the meeting, that he wished he could be here, but unfortunately he had to work and that he had passed along to her one small, humble request, which she wondered if she could now bring up before the association. Dad told her children to let her know she could. Her request was this. Her husband, due to the chronic strain of his custodial work, had lately been suffering from severe lower back pain, and this pain had become further exacerbated by his having to sleep, every night, in a thin sleeping bag, beneath a ping pong table, on the floor. Her husband was very grateful for our family's generously low rent, which enabled the Batistas to send almost all their earnings back to their family still in the Dominican Republic, but he was wondering if it wasn't too much trouble, if he might be able to sleep on the couch in the living room as he had noticed it was always unoccupied when he came home from his shift late at night. Mrs. Batista stopped speaking before Joaquin did, and as he translated her last few sentences, Mrs. Batista looked right at me and waited for her words to be understood. Joaquin finished speaking. The room was silent and still. Okay, said my dad. Let's put it to a vote. Everyone in favor of granting Mr.
2: Batista exclusive nighttime sleeping privileges on the living room couch raised their hand.
0: The elderly couple raised their hands. Pascal and Dave raised their hands. The religious ascetics raised their hands, and so did Stevie, and so did Venom Retriever. The Batista children raised their hands. Lola whispered into her mother's ear, and then Mrs. Batista raised her hand her face breaking into a smile, the smile that I relied on as antidote to the cruelty and hatred that had infected my every expedition into the adult world, I raised my hand. of the Tenants' Association, no surprise, did not usher in a gilded age of peace and prosperity. Whereas before everyone had accepted the terms of their leases without complaint, now everyone had a grievance to err, a cause to champion, a bone to pick. For example, the elderly couple wanted access to the television, With entertainment in the laundry room lacking, they felt a little weather channel and a little C-span would greatly improve their quality of life. Sure, fine, access granted, except then Stevie and the Batista children complained that the elderly couple were watching the weather channel all the time. Eight hours a day of highs and lows, color-coded precipitation of soul-crushing Muzak of looped animations of low-pressure fronts, an arbitration subcommittee of my dad, Cortez and Dave, who had just gotten a b plus in intro to business law, hashed out a compromise. The elderly couple's TV-watching privileges were restricted to school hours on weekdays. Stevie and the Batistas were granted exclusive viewing rights from 3.30pm until their bedtime. And then on weekends, the two factions shared joint custody, the schedule taped by Cortez to the side of the family Trinitron. Perfect. Fine. Wonderful. Except, then, Dad would watch TV whenever his favorite programs came on. White people in apartments, who wants to shout for an hour, head injuries of the once prominent and influential. The elderly couple cried foul, claiming Dad was reneging on the ruling of his own subcommittee, Stevie and the Batistas threw a fit because most of Dad's favorite shows aired during the children's exclusive viewing block. Dad, seeking to assuage their anger, agreed to explore this issue comprehensively during the next meeting of the arbitration subcommittee the following Friday. But the next Friday, Dave had a night class, accounting principles, and missed the meeting so, only Dad and Cortez were present when the committee voted unanimously to grant Dad full veto powers over both the love seat and the remote control. The next dispute was over the shower. Previously, the Batistas, Cortez, and the elderly couple had access to the downstairs shower. Pascal and Dave shared the shower and Dave's efficiency, and the religious ascetics had exclusive use of a garden hose. Venom Retriever had been granted no showering privileges whatsoever. But then the ascetics decided that they, too, wanted to shower indoors. I said, hold on a second... Wouldn't showering indoors sort of go against the whole concept of asceticism? Wouldn't lathering, rinsing, and repeating be contrary to their basic principles of austerity and self-denial? Wasn't cleansing themselves once every two weeks with frigid water from a garden hose kind of their thing? No, said the ascetic spokesman. We want to shower indoors. Also, we would like access to complimentary towels as well as shampoo and soap. The ascetics got their shower. On Mondays through Wednesdays, they would use the shower and the efficiency. On Thursdays through Saturdays, they would use the shower downstairs. And on Sundays, they would alternate. The efficiency on even days. Downstairs, on odds. Great. Fine. Problem solved. Except... Within a week, Dave complained that the ascetics had used all his shampoo. The Batista children whined that their towels now smelled like incense and turmeric. Mrs. Batista walked in on four bald men chanting and enjoying a communal bubble bath, and and screamed and screamed and screamed. Soon, the Tenants' Association meetings became little more than shouting matches. The Batistas versus the Ascetics, the Elderly versus the Batistas, the Ascetics versus Dave and Pascal, pretty much everyone versus Venom Retriever. Cortez, ever the Machiavelli, always backed Dad, publicly supported his decisions, made sure he kept himself in Dad's good graces. But at the same time, he subtly manipulated the tenant's unrest to his benefit. Got all tenants, and therefore himself, free turkey dinner for the upcoming Thanksgiving, with an additional clause stipulating cranberry sauce and sweet potatoes. Got all tenants, and therefore himself, unlimited use of the dryer and washing machine, the elderly couple clutching their ears as laundry clattered and spun all day and night. I wasn't dumb. I could see what Cortez was doing, but whenever I tried to tell Dad he was being played, he wouldn't listen to me. Cortez, said Dad. No, Cortez is a good man, a fine man. Comes from an
2: impressive lineage. Let me tell you something. You ever watch National Geographic Cribs? You should, it'll change your life.
0: human, to see a man in uniform and yet only really see the uniform, to forget that a cop makes mortgage payments and a tollbooth attendant worries about his parents' health and a security guard videotapes her children's first steps and a UPS driver takes prescription drugs for high blood pressure. Around the time that the Tenants' Association had spun wildly out of control, a coworker of mine, a fellow officer on the first shift, lost her husband to cancer. They had been married for seven years, had been discussing children right when the husband first complained of a lump in his throat. She took a week off to attend the funeral, to grieve, and then was back on the beat She was known department-wide for her toughness, never let the insults bother her, chuckled at the harshest profanity, always employed verbal deflectors, yes, however, agreed, but, nonetheless. But, in the days after her return, after her husband's death, her impenetrable exterior failed. The insults got to her, the names cut her. She came back to Peterson, crying, every single day. And I thought, would people have called her a parking Nazi if they had waited with her in the hospital during her husband's chemotherapy? Would they have called her a little Hitler if they had helped her wipe up her husband's vomit after another lost meal? Would they have called her a bitch, a hoe, a monster, a meter-slut, if they had been the one to tell her, after two long, painful years, that her husband's fight was finally over. At home, I still carried Mom her dinner every night, but no longer updated her on downstairs developments. I kept downstairs as she had wanted it, out of sight, out of mind, Sometimes she would ask about Dad, who was spending almost all of his time with Cortez, organizing meetings, reviewing minutes, planning programs, serving on subcommittees, and I would say, Dad's fine. No mention of Dad presiding over some cockamamie social experiment. No mention of Dad all but abandoning his job search. No mention of Dad losing his f***ing mind. Instead, we talked about sports, music, TV shows, the weather. We talked about our favorite ice cream flavors. We talked about municipal code. So, said my mom, is there a special lady in your life right now? I thought of Mrs. Batista, her kind heart, Her gentle warmth, her language I didn't understand, her devastating smile. No, I said, there's no one special. That Diego had supposedly gone all the way with one of the Hooters' waitresses. He had taken her to a bar after work, flashed his fake ID, bought her a series of Jaeger bombs, and earned an invitation back to her place. And now, after working the quote-unquote Diego magic, he was treating himself to a celebratory hot fudge sundae and looking immensely pleased with himself. Tony refused to believe that anything Diego had said was true. Which bar did you go to? Said Tony. Sonny's. Said Diego. Impossible. No such
4: bar exists. Bro, it's on Second Avenue by the Breymard. Horse. <laughs> approximately what time? I don't know. 11:30, midnight. Why? Who was bartending that night? I don't know, Tony. Bullshit. Bull Dude, what does it matter who's bartending that night? Horse. Captain Planet, okay? Captain Planet was bartending that night. It was great. He served as a Jaeger train, then we all saved the rainforest. Cow You, Tony, some girl with a pierced chin. Bull
0: No, she really had a pierced chin. Francesca, meanwhile, looked far from celebratory. She had dark circles under her eyes, ordered her meal in a brittle voice, left her chicken ranch melt three-quarters unfinished, remained silent throughout the cross-examination of Diego's lost virginity. I tried to joke with her, told her the one about a priest, a minister, and a novelty parking enforcement officer walking into a bar, but she didn't crack even the smallest smile. I asked her what was wrong. She told me she hadn't had a good night's sleep in over a month.
3: I just lie there, she said, worrying. Worrying about the silliest things. Am I gonna sleep through my alarm tomorrow? Will I be able to find anyone to cover my shift on Friday? Is this mole on my thigh cancerous? How much am I gonna make tomorrow in tips? 1 AM, 2 AM, 3 AM, I'm still lying there. I worry about not being able to fall asleep. I worry about worrying about not being able to fall asleep.
4: What's her name? Said Tony. Gloria. Said Diego. Impossible. Impossible? No one's named Gloria. What bro, Gloria Stefan, turn the beat around. Rhythm is gonna get you. Name another Gloria. You, Tony? Impossible.
3: I worry about contracting the swine flu.
4: Said
0: Francesca.
3: I worry about stepping on an HIV-infected needle. I worry that I'll die overnight of carbon monoxide poisoning. That the fluoride in my toothpaste might be slowly killing me. That the current levels of population growth are unsustainable. I worry about being raped, robbed, assaulted, molested. I I worry about which strip malls in my neighborhood a terrorist would be most likely to attack.
4: What are her interests? Her interests? You know, tennis? Horseback riding? Long walks on the beach? How the hell should I know? Does she enjoy classical music? Bro. Does she enjoy the theater? Tony, I f***ed her.
3: I didn't write her biography. Does she enjoy fishing for largemouth bass? I worry about the healthcare crisis. I worry about oil spills. About world poverty. Global warming. Human rights violations in Southeast Asia. I worry about not doing enough. Not giving enough. Not helping enough. Not caring enough. How much is enough? 5 volunteer hours a week? 10? 15? 10% of my tips. 20? Thirty? Forty? I worry that no matter what I do, no matter how much I give, it will never be enough.
4: What does she smell like? Dude. Generally speaking, first impression. Whoa. One word. Summarize her smell in one word. F- you, Tony. Inhale, exhale. First thing that pops in your head.
3: Peaches. When I get tired of lying awake, I watch TV. I surf the internet. I read the Wikipedia entries on Cool and the Gang, the Magna Carta, iced tea. There are terrible shows on TV that late at night. I watch excitable men sell me steak knives. I watch girls on spring break flash me pixelated breasts. I watch car chases, plane crashes, the world's most horrifying impalements. I watch celebrities in chairs interviewing celebrities on couches. I watch toll-free numbers flash in front of Jesus' agony on the cross.
4: What was your place like? I don't know. Was it quaint? Was it tastefully furnished? It was dark and I was drunk. Were there pictures of Gloria as a child? Little Gloria riding a rocking horse. Little Gloria taking her first steps. Little Gloria enjoying a tea party with her stuffed bears. Bro.
3: I'm tired. I'm tired of feeling so confused and helpless, of not having a purpose, of serving southern-style fried chicken to men wearing pantaloons.
4: What was she wearing? I don't know. A skirt? A blouse? can't remember. A halter top? Tiny orange shorts? Crows. She was wearing crows. What did she say when you entered her apartment? Did you find what she said cliché? Was it something like, would you like something to drink? Let me show you the bedroom. So, what do you want to do now?
3: I worry that there is no God. I worry that there is a God. I worry about going to hell. About what I have to do not to go to hell. About what if there is no hell and no one gives a flying etc. About anything I do.
4: Where did she touch you first? Dude, those old people in the next booth can't hear you. Was she rough? Was she gentle? Bro... Do you think she's telling all her friends she hooked up with the Hot Hooters busboy? I don't care what she's telling her friends. Do you think she even remembers what happened?
3: I want to fall asleep. I want to fall asleep. But I don't know if I want to wake up.
4: Were you nervous? Hell no! Were you nervous? Dude, no! Were you nervous? A a little.
3: I worry that life has no meaning. I think that's what I'm doing, every night, trying to discover life's meaning, as I toss and turn and watch white men sell me cutlery on television.
4: Was it prompted by a verbal command, take me, enter me, have me?
3: I worry that life has meaning, but I'll never know what it is.
4: Did you pause to reflect upon this moment's significance in your personal history? Did you admire the play of moonlight upon your lover's naked
0: flesh? I'm
3: tired. I'm tired of being tired of being tired.
0: How did it feel? I'm sorry, I said, if there's anything I can do. One word. Summarize how it felt in one word. It's okay, said Francesca, reaching across the table and clutching my hand. Inhale. Exhale. you were an insider. So, said Francesca, the waitress brought us our check.
3: How do you sleep at night?